Romans 1. We'll continue to drive through these verses, verse by verse, getting as much as we can out of it. I've tried my best, and I think we've done an okay job on not bogging ourselves down too much with review. We're trying to move on and and not repeat everything from a prior sermon, but in these few sermons where we've had to repeat uh, some fundamentals because we're still in the same verse. This will be the 10th message on Romans 1. This will be the second sermon on Romans 118. Uh, We're going to continue to get what's left out of that verse and continue to really understand what the Apostle Paul was saying. If you still have that piece of paper that breaks down the outline and how we'll be preaching through this, uh, we've gone through the greeting, the introduction, the theme, and we took four sermons there to go through 16 and 17, verse 16 and 17, the theme of the book. And we'll probably reiterate this a few more times, but if you do not get Romans 1, 16 and 17 as the foundation point, as the pivot place, as the axis on which everything else in Romans turns, then you're missing a great opportunity to understand and embrace the rest of the book. Romans 1, 16 and 17 is vital. That's why we spent so much time on it. And if you were not here when we did that study, there's a few sermons there. You'll need to go back and really embrace 16 and 17. And then tonight, uh, we have uh, an opportunity to finish verse 18. Uh, Let's go ahead and start at verse number 16. Uh, Reread the theme, kind of capture our thoughts together. Read 18. We'll pray and then we'll dive in uh, to this verse. Romans 1 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Remember now, anytime you see in Romans 1 the word uh, barbarian, you'll notice that that has to do with those who are not Greek, that do, that do not speak the Greek language, who are not uh, educated by Greeks, anyone who is not Greek. And that's exactly what he's talking about here. For therein, now, verse 17 starts, for therein is the righteousness of God. What is therein? What is therein? The power of God unto salvation. For therein, the power of God is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. That's believer to believer, you sharing your faith, you living your faith. And then that the faith would pass on generation to generation. We talked about that Sunday, the the faith of Abraham. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live. How? By faith. So faith is a key element. Uh, The righteousness of God is a key element. Not being ashamed, his tone, his stance, after all that had happened to him, being stoned, being made fun of, being mocked, being imprisoned. He gives us the theme of the letter. Now we go on to verse number 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now, we talked about the word is revealed, what it really means what he's really inferring here, and we really broke that down. Let me just touch on this very quickly. Again, I don't like to spend a lot of time reviewing, but just to build the base as we continue in this same verse. 
Now, is revealed is not some sort of knee-jerk reaction, nor is it in God's character to respond towards unrighteousness or ungodliness in some sort of reaction lifestyle. In other words, when he sees the ungodliness or he embraces that there is unrighteousness, that God then responds to the unrighteousness or that he responds to the ungodliness. Is revealed means that the wrath of God, which we'll characterize in five different parts, but the wrath of God is continually, always, ever flowing, ever going, ever and always at full capacity, understand that, against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. In other words, if our God is as holy as He claims to be, then there can be no variation or levels of wrath towards evil, towards wickedness, towards sin. God is perfect in His characteristics. So if God hates something, He hates it completely. And at the same time that all that hate and all that anger and all that righteous indignation from God is coming out in a vast space of continuance as that is happening in the same light and in the same character from the same God is great forgiveness and great mercy and great grace. He is the same God with the same attributes that are continually always at full capacity. In human understanding, we usually live in sort of an emotional bubble. If I'm happy, you're going to look at my face and say, he's happy. If something happens to me, somebody steps on my toes and upsets me, I'm going to have a knee-jerk, emotional, human reaction, and you're going to know I'm not happy. That's not how God works when it comes to wrath, when it comes to his holy anger. So God reveals that wrath that's continually going out against unrighteousness, revealed against ungodliness. He does that indirectly through the natural consequences of violating His universal moral law. And then He also reveals His wrath directly through His personal intervention. The Old Testament is a great place for us to understand this. The flood, the worldwide flood. When the Israelites are put into Babylonian captivity and God takes credit for it. When fire and brimstone level Sodom and Gomorrah. Those are purposeful, intentional interventions where God has had enough. And let me add a little sidebar rabbit trail to that thought. My my heart, my burden for my country is, God, please don't get to a place where you've had enough. Find enough people in this country that are still hungering and thirsting for righteousness where you don't have to take your hands off of the land completely. That there is still a remnant that love you, respect you, and fear you. Continuing on. Now, at a point, God gets fed up. God has had enough. There has been enough opportunity. There has been enough chance. And if you'll notice, especially with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, God holds His children to a standard. He expects them to live a particular way. He expects them to submit themselves to the king in a particular way. He expects the king to operate in a particular way. God has expectations of His people. 
And when God's people step out of line with what his expectations are, then God's people can even see a break in the fellowship that comes in the form of righteous wrath. That you have sinned against the Father. That there is a broken fellowship that you have turned your back. Now, Here's where we get into the doctrines of salvation and Romans is where we will build a great foundation to understand exactly what salvation is and how salvation works. But let it be said, let it be understood now that we will explain in great detail later. Never at any point in time does a saved, born-again, regenerated person that has come from death unto life in a perfect work of salvation ever go back into the existence of death. In other words, you will never lose your salvation. But there is a point, there is a place where a child of God can go up against so much truth and the flesh that that child of God is still attached to gets so in control and God offers many opportunities, many chances, many spaces of grace and yet that child of God continuously goes further and deeper into the far country away from the Father's table but in an act of wrath, yet in an act of mercy, the Father says, I've had enough. I can't bear the sight of my child there in the far country any longer. And God in wrath, but in mercy, removes the child from the far country and brings him back to the house by force. But he brings that child back to the house in force, in death. The wages of sin is death never changes. The wages of sin is death never changes. Sin will always get you killed. Bottom line. Sin will always lead to destruction. Your salvation is not a green card, an open season, a hunting trophy or ticket to openly, wickedly live against the grace of God. Number one, I have a hard time believing someone like that's actually saved. You come head on with the grace of God. You come head on with the Holy Spirit of God. And there's a new man that happens. The regeneration of the Spirit happens. Something's going to change. Something's going to show. Something's going to bear fruit. It may come five years later. You may be a slow grower. You may be a slow learner. But at some point, there'll be some fruit that bears witness to that. The the wrath of God is seen by even God's people sometimes as some sort of taboo subject that we can't discuss. What we're trying to embrace here in this verse early is praise God for the wrath of God. Thank you, Lord, that you love me enough to hold me to that standard, that you want me to live differently than the world lives. The wrath of God is constantly, continually revealed against the world And it's continually, always revealed even unto His children. We fear the Lord. We fear Him. You say, we need to be careful speaking of fear of God. We don't want to scare people. No, you're wrong. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of Him. I don't ever want to stand in this pulpit and His hand not be on me. 
I don't ever want to stand up and get out of my bed in the morning and go to pray and there be no presence and no power, no relationship. That terrifies me. And what a Christian does is filtered down into their soul, into their spirit, even though we are living in our flesh, a desire to die daily to our desire. God, I do not want to disappoint you. I'm waiting for glorification. I'll never know sinless perfection in this life. But Lord, I love you and fear you so much. I never want to know what it is to feel the wrath of God in my own life. That God would have to correct me or punish me or do something to get my attention because I'm so focused on the trivial trivialities of this life and this world. I want God to have quick access to my heart. That He can get a hold of me just like that. When something comes out of my mouth I have no business saying, instantly God does something in my heart. I know I've broken fellowship. I've harmed the Holy Ghost. I have done something that I should not do. I want to know quickly and I want to respond because I fear the Lord. The wrath of God is a wonderful, wonderful principle. The most graphic revelation of that wrath, and we talked about this a little bit last week, but the most graphic reveal, the most graphic display of the wrath of God is when Jesus became sin on the cross at Calvary. And as He became sin, He became a curse. It was separation, anathema, that God would turn His back on His Son. I think that was part of the brokenness in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is pondering, when Jesus is seeing what is coming. He's God and He's man. He knows what's coming on the cross. He knows what's coming with the whip. He knows what's coming with the crown of thorns. He knows what's coming with the nailing. But He also knows that there's going to be a fracture between Him and God the Father and that God the Father is going to have to turn His back on Him. And that for a temporary moment, the Trinity is going to have a separation. There'll be a moment where God turns His back on His Son. And the Son of God's grieving in the garden. That is the cost of the wrath of God. Now here's the beautiful part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is where we get to live in victory with big smiles on our faces and be encouraged. The wrath of God that you will experience as a Christian was already poured out on the cross of Calvary so that you did not have to experience yourself what that wrath was. So all of the eternity in hell, listen to me now, stay with me in this thought, the eternity in hell that you would have lived, the cost of an eternity in hell separated from God was the cost of the curse on Calvary. In other words, when God poured out His judgment, His wrath, His indignation, His hate, He did it upon Jesus Himself. And for everyone that would ever be saved, there had to be enough wrath and anger to justify hell for each and every believer that should have gone to hell. That is a great payment of wrath and anger that Jesus, for me, absorbed. 
I never have to go to hell because of what Jesus did on the cross at Calvary. And when He paid for it, He didn't just pay for my salvation. He paid for my damnation that I never have to know. And now not only do I get to live on this earth with the Holy Ghost of God living on the inside, but I never have to know what it is to be separated from God because of the wrath that Jesus felt on the cross. That is good Bible preaching. Somebody say amen. Amen. Praise God I don't have to go to hell. Somebody had to pay. And I didn't have a big enough checkbook to write the check. I didn't have a credit line in heaven big enough to cover the charge. But Jesus took it all on the cross. That is why we can live in the United States of America. In the land of the free and the home of the brave. The greatest democratic republic ever to be created on God's green earth. And we can watch it fall apart, self-implode, turn to darkness, turn to wickedness, that everything would change. But somehow, at the end of the day, everything be okay. This is how. Because Jesus took your wrath on the cross. You say you're so passionate about that. You're too loud and animated over it. Thank God I never have to know what His wrath is. Thank God I don't have to go an eternity separated from Him. Now God's wrath as students. We want to know more of God's Word, so let's know more of God's Word. God's wrath is carried out In five different capacities. This will make you a better student, but this will also make you a better Christian. You'll be able to embrace how beautiful your salvation is. God's wrath comes out in five different ways, five different capacities. The first we've already talked about, that's eternal wrath. Now that's in hell. I'll never know it. The second is prophetic wrath. This is the day of the Lord when Jesus returns. He puts Satan in his place. And the Antichrist in his place. And all the fallen angels in their place. The third is cataclysmic wrath. Now, cataclysmic wrath is the great flood. Where the entire earth was covered with water. Fire and brimstone that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. We talked about that a moment ago. Some would say that cataclysmic wrath was the great tsunami of 2004. Do I have that correctly? Students of history, 2004, 2005, someone are there, the, the massive tsunami that killed hundreds of thousands of people, that is a cataclysmic interaction with a God that's angry. God sometimes does things to shake the entire world to remind us that He's there. He's a jealous God. There's attributes of God that we have a hard time palating because we don't understand our Bible enough to understand our God enough. Our God has a jealous yet righteous attribute. He wants your attention. He wants your praise. He wants your first fruits. Poppy used to say it this way, if you come to God's house 
and enjoy the benefits of being in God's house with God's people, yet you do not pay back or give back to God His first fruits, then you're a God robber, is the way Papa used to put it. God is a jealous God. The only, the only reason I have any money tonight in my bank account is because God gave me the ability to gain financially to be able to pay my bills and to take care of my wife and do what I'm supposed to do. That all came from God. Every dollar that I have, whether I have $1,000 or a $1 million, it all belongs to God. Now God in love says, I'll just take the first fruits. It belongs to me. And then what happens is I give even when I don't feel like I have it. And then God gives it back to me. It's the love and the mercy of God. There is a jealousy that's holy because He so loves you. If God was willing to give His Son to pay for your sins so that you didn't have to go to hell, imagine then how He must feel as a righteous, holy God when someone ignores that gift and decides not to live in the capacity in which he requires. The greatest gift to ever be given, totally ignored. God responds to this, and the Bible says that he responds in what's been revealed, and that's wrath against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Number four is consequential wrath. This is the principle of you reap what you sow. Sometimes the wrath of God is revealed in your own actions. Your flesh gets ahead of your heart. Your fleshly desire becomes more important than what God requires of you. And you get into a place, you get into a rut. You do things that have no business being a part of your lifestyle, whatever it may be. You keep sowing and you keep sowing that same seed. And then when that seed comes back and it's time for harvest, what you get back out of that is exactly what you sowed. And sometimes the greatest mistakes of our lives are when we respond in emotion, when we respond and we're hurt, and what we don't realize is we're sowing seed that we're going to have to pay for later. A lot of times it happens with words. There are relationships that will never be the same because someone allowed their emotions to get ahead of their heart as saved people. And when those words came out, they sowed seed that when those seeds blossom and we see the full result of plowing and sowing that unrighteous seed and it comes to bear fruit, it's wrath. Some like to call it paying the piper. That's why every moment of every day, of every opportunity and every conversation we have is an opportunity for us to be guarded and Christ-like as much as we possibly can. That comes by praying and reading the Word and growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. Stagnant Christians will often find themselves in this place. If you're not growing spiritually, then prepare at some point to know that you're not growing spiritually because you find out that you have been sowing some seed that's going to bring wrath in your home. Unfaithfulness to God's house will always sow seed that you'll have to pay for. 
We're called to be the church. And when the church steps out of its role and responsibility, we'll talk about that in a moment, what happens is a nation sows that seed, and then what they reap is wrath. The fifth is the wrath of abandonment. And we talked about this just a moment ago. This is when God removes the restraint. He allows someone to go in their sin. The wrath of abandonment. Psalm 81, 11 through 12. Let's read these verses. Psalm 81, 11 through 12. They'll be on your screen. But my people would not hearken to my voice. Now notice he's saying, my people... The children of God, my people would not hearken to my voice. And Israel would none of me. So I gave them up unto their own heart's lusts. And they walked in their own counsels. I'm afraid that this is a real portion of where we are as a society. Droves of people, even people in leadership, elected officials, you name it. CEOs, executives, Fortune 500 people, folks that have control over the economy, the stock market, the Fed. When an entire generation turns its back on God and says we no longer wish to recognize the God that gave us everything that we have, what we are left with is the Actions of our own hands. We've created our own mess. He talks about this word, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against two things, ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness will always be a lack of reverence. Ungodliness is a lack of reverence. It's a lack of reverence for devotion It's a lack of worship, and it's a lack of a relationship. Now, honestly, more than we have ever been before, when you look at our culture, our nation, this is where we are. Ungodliness prevails. We're truly an ungodly people. As a whole, over 300 million people in this country. And the group of people that believe that Jesus is the only way, that Jesus is the Son of God, who believe that the Word of God is the uh, absolute truth, it shrinks every day. And we're watching great, once great denominations, and once great universities, and once great seminaries turn their back on the truth. And now what's allowed to cultivate openly and what's cheered and what's welcomed is ungodliness. The greatest place to see it and understand it is obviously always TV, social media, streaming services. They all carry content that will make light of Or use God as a punchline. They'll use God as a bit 
or an attempt to make a point about Christians or the way we vote or the way we act or our education or our ability to understand. We're called Bible thumpers, religious nuts, right-wing Jesus freaks. These are all terms that are used openly and without hesitation. Now, when even a cartoon show for adults depicts Jesus, or they depict God as some sort of joke in their cartoon, in their show, what they don't realize they're saying out loud, unapologetically, is that they are ungodly. In their attempt to make fun, to make light of what they are acknowledging and what they are admitting in their sinful nature is that yes, there is a God. Whether they wish to admit it or not. Why would God be such a part of the joke? Why would He be such a part of a punchline repertoire? Because He exists. There's something that must be done about this movement called God. And ungodly people, whether they understand what it is or not, feel the pressure up against that fact that there is a God. Many times it comes out in the form of abjectly saying, there is no God. The Bible says only a fool would say that. Only a fool would believe that. Because there is so much evidence even in the nature of humanity that proves that there is a God. This is a lack of devotion, a lack of acknowledgement, and a lack of worship. And it is ungodliness. That is the culture. Now he gives us another word, unrighteousness. This refers to the result of the ungodliness. You get unrighteousness from ungodliness. This is a lack of conformity. This is a lack of deed and character that has to do with the law of God. And this is the result, the root cause of all ungodliness. And this is where we began to cleanse our society of morality and anything that could remind us that there is a God in heaven. We are at a crossroads of ungodliness and unrighteousness at a new proportion in our country than we've ever been before. Everything from your money to the Internal Revenue Service to media to culture and politics, even the way you buy a car, Everything is changing. And at the core of that change is not a political movement. Rather, it is the result of ungodliness that leads to unrighteousness. And when unrighteousness prevails, and men's hearts that are wicked and deceitful above all have the control, then it is a perfect breeding ground for things to happen that we know to be untrue, yet those same people will call it truth. That's why we are at a place where gender is such a contentious issue. 
Because we were first ungodly and then we became unrighteous. And now we are paying the price. So if the church loses its edge as it pertains to being the opposite or the antidote to the unrighteousness and the ungodliness, then what happens? Shut up the church. Keep the the Christian quiet. Close his mouth. And let the unrighteousness and the ungodliness have its way with the gift that God gave us. That is what's happening in your country. And for us to minimalize it or for us to boil it down and just say, well, it's politics, wrong answer. It is ungodliness and unrighteousness. And it's on display for our entire world to see. I'll close with this. But I believe with all my heart, if I go back and I look, and I was talking to Pastor Rory about this the other day, but if I go back and I look at America, if I go back and look at the great revivals we had, if I go back and look at church history post-World War II, all that fighting, all that sacrifice had been given. The greatest generation of modern Americans ever to live. If you watch what happened, We got into a place where we didn't want to pay the price anymore. Somewhere along the line. We were tired of war. We were tired of loss. We were tired of paying the price. That generation did not want their children to experience what they they experienced. They didn't want them to have to know what gas rations were. What sugar rations were. They wanted them to have a better life. It took a long time before we became materialistic because the materialism wasn't there. They didn't have the instant gratification that we have today. It didn't exist. But what you see happen in history is you go back to the 1960s. And you begin to see the Vietnam War really be the pivot place and the tool in the holster of the devil. And between the peace movement, and we use that word loosely and lightly, the peace movement, the hippie movement, the free love movement, and then you mix with that the emotion of music that began to change our entire country forever, that is where I see modern America really begin to slide off the rail exponentially quicker than we ever had before. And if you go back and you start studying the roots of this ungodliness, the roots of this unrighteousness, so much of it has to do with music and emotion and culture. When groups like the Beatles, now stay with me here, we'll be done in just a moment, but when groups like the Beatles came, what they brought with them, we thought was a fun, cute little group, had a different way of doing music. And then comes Led Zeppelin. And then comes Ozzy Osbourne. And then comes Queen. Can someone tell me what those groups, those movements have in common? They all have roots back to England. You go back to the end of World War II... Men are leaving, coming home. 
You go back even further, 1909, 1910, then you go through the Prohibition, the Great Depression, what they lived in before even World War II came. You had people that were tough, that were gritty, and that were willing to work hard. You had a good cluster of Americans that knew what it was to live and to work. But then when offered an easier lifestyle, when offered an opportunity to veer away from what was being taunted as, as some sort of box that would keep you held down, and then you add to that all the aspects of tough life and war life, there became an opportunity for an entire nation to be gripped by a movement that would take it away from God further and further and further and further. Now, when I say groups like the Beatles or Queen or Ozzy Osbourne, today we don't hear that and go, oh my, there's not that fast jump in our heart. We as the church have been desensitized to embrace that as part of our culture. But if you'll go back and listen to the men of God, and if you'll go back and listen to the church and its response at that time, when that movement took on like wildfire and spread all over our country, and listen to the warnings of the men of God then, they told us that we would sow that seed and turn our backs and make room for it in our lives, but that at some point we would pay the price for ungodliness and unrighteousness being allowed to prevail openly in our nation. And now, almost 60 years removed, what do you have? You can't go and play the top 10 songs in America because of the filth and the horrendous language and the horrendous innuendo that is saturated every genre of music to this point. That's a long roundabout way of saying we had it really wrong in the 60s and because we had it really wrong in the 60s, we got it really wrong in the 70s, 80s and then the materialism of the 90s took off. And the church was wooed away from her place of standing against being the difference of ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now, let's just state the obvious. That's not popular to say. But it is the truth. And it's where we are. So how do we as Christians use a letter that Paul wrote to the Romans thousands of years ago to warn us that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness? What should be our response? To be different to be away from, separated, or let's, let's use this word, sanctified, away from all of the ungodliness and all of the unrighteousness. In other words, if it displeases God, I want nothing to do with it. If it embarrasses God, I want nothing to do with it. If it does something between me and my God and our relationship, I want nothing to do with it. And it's an opportunity to embrace what in these days will be called a radical Christianity. And that's that we live in the world, but bless God, I'm not of 
the world because I fear a God of great wrath. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The beach ball effect. You've got it under the water. You may have a good grip on it, but eventually the beach ball's coming up. It's going to pop up. And it'll show its ugly head every time. It's an opportunity for us all to grow. And as you lay your head on the pillow tonight, and you think about Jesus and who He is and what He is, you say, Lord, thank You. God, thank You for my salvation. Lord, tonight as we come back into Your presence, Lord, I'm so thankful that You've given us an opportunity to live different. God, that I don't have to live in what Satan had for me to live in. Or that I don't have to be in a place of eternal damnation. But God, I get to live in the freedom and the victory of being a Christian. But I'm thankful that you hold a standard. That you're a God of mercy and a God of love. And a God that will forgive. And a God that will sustain But Lord, my prayer is the same as it was yesterday. Lord, I pray that you'd take this church. Lord, that you would inspect our hearts. And Lord, that we would take a giant leap, a giant shift towards God. Lord, that we would scoot up close to the cross. God, in these days that we would live for you each and every hour of our lives. Lord, I need you tonight. I'm desperate for your leadership, your guidance in my life. And Lord, I'm so thankful. I'm so grateful for the relationship I have with you. Jesus, you're wonderful. You're so good to us. Be with us tonight as we leave and go home. I pray for Sunday. Lord, if it be your will that we preach the word of God, Lord, that you would be in the service. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the still small voice that speaks to his people. In Jesus' name we all pray. Amen. I love you, church. I'm thankful for you. As we go forward, this is my prayer. God would give us a clear picture of who we are and who he is. Because when we see Jesus for who he is, Man, it'll change our life. It'll change us. You get a deeper glimpse of who Christ is, it will change your life. You better get a a, a good grip on His Word. Because in the madness that's happening in our country, in our world, you better have an anchor. Can't be a dollar. Can't be a house or a car. Better be something greater. I love you. Be safe. Good night. God bless you. Go home. Get some rest.